It's good to see everyone out this evening. It's uh, been a good day of worship so far. It's been kind of fickle weather outside. It's been going back and forth between, uh, I guess it just can't decide if it wants to be gloomy or if it just wants to be sunny and, and, and happy, but um, we're getting every bit of the, the weather right now. At least it's not extreme weather, so we're all able to be together again uh, this evening and, and study another portion of God's Word. As I said, if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 26, we're going to be reading from this passage in just a moment. But uh, before we get into that, as I was studying for this lesson, I came across, I would say, just an interesting quote from someone that I did not know who this man was until I just did a very, very um, rudimentary web search on who this man was. So you may know who he is better than I do, but uh, before I get to the quote, his name is William Blackstone. He was a legal scholar who is known for his deep thinking and, and his clarifying on, um, on the common law, his, his uh, clarifying written works on common law in England. Um, and his work influenced some U.S. common law thinking. There's apparently some connections to, to much of uh, the, the thinking behind our laws in, in our country and for some time also with this man. But uh, really, that's about all I want to know about him. I really just wanted to know uh, a little bit of a foundation of who he was before I gave this quote because it just it intrigued me. It caught my attention. And he, it, this is one of many quotes. But he says, better that 10 guilty persons escape than that one innocent should suffer. Now, I really don't know what all to make of that statement. I think maybe there are some good thoughts uh, put into that. Maybe there are some bad thoughts. I, I just don't know. But at the very least, it did made, make me think about one, what seems to be a current obsession in our culture with justice. You even have uh, groups of people that would call themselves like social justice warriors. And, and, and I mean, just we're surrounded by people who are so focused on that thought of justice. And you'd think, I mean, that, that's a noble and that's a virtuous thing to, to seek after and, and to desire. But what's most interesting about that is I think even uh, when you get outside of the political realm, I, I think all people have at least some desire for justice universally. You see a lot of trends on YouTube, especially there are videos that talk about uh, uh, instant karma. They'll be titled that. And what do you see? Someone does something rude or they're just kind of a jerk to someone. And immediately they, they just get <laughs> punched in the face or something. Uh, instant karma. Or, you know, somebody trips another individual and as soon as they turn around, they smack their face in the, in the signpost. Well, I kind of just given away. You know one of my pastimes now, but it, 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 it's something—it's just some popular videos that you'll see come up. We people just love seeing that kind of stuff. Instant justice, instant karma. Uh, but thinking about that—that that desire for justice, and especially about that quote, "Better that ten guilty persons escape than that one innocent suffer." I want to look tonight at a passage, uh, at a story, where the innocent victim was unjustly harmed, slandered, and criminalized, but there was no instant karma. There was no quick restitution. There was no justice whatsoever. It, that's, that's not a story that people like to watch as much. 
We love those moments where we see the, the aggressor, the oppressor, immediately get what's coming to them. We don't like to ha see those stories or read about them or watch them even in our entertainment where someone is just suffering, even though they don't deserve it. People don't like to watch the story of Job in, in a movie. But unfortunately, that is what happens from time to time, even today. But especially in this story, instead of the guilty being let go to save the innocent, um, or rather, instead of the guilty being kept uh, incarcerated to save the in innocent, the innocent was kept so that the guilty could be let free. I think you see this even uh, as a very literal connection when you get to Barnabas in this story. We're not going to spend too much time on him, but Barnabas especially is one moment where he absolutely was a criminal. Jesus did not deserve anything that he was getting. And who did they choose? The man that was so clearly guilty. And who did they say to crucify? The man that was so very clearly innocent. And I think that there are some deeper applications for us to make from that. But we'll see that as we go. Really just three points that I want to make. As we look at Jesus being really this, this innocent victim who has been by the culture surrounding him criminalized and being punished for just telling the truth, for just being the son of God who he says he is. I want to see his demeanor throughout all of this because he does suffer injustice. And what's interesting, first of all, is, is his silence in all of this. Beginning in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 57, I just want to read a few verses here very quickly. Beginning in verse 57, it says, Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man coming at the right hand of power and, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. And they spat in his face and beat him with their fists and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? Now, we'll stop there for just a moment, but I wanted to just read through those few verses at the very outset just to see, uh, again, what Jesus speaks to and what he does not. And this is the first point that I want to really uh, apply uh, for us today. He did not find it necessary to answer every silly and really just absurd statement made against him. As we already read, there were several false accusations, several false testimonies. He doesn't speak to those things. And immediately, I think we, thinking about how we would respond, which is what, what I want to do the entire study tonight, how we would respond is, if someone says something, makes a false accusation about me, I'm going to very quickly address that. And without even much thinking, I'm just going to do it right now. But Jesus, instead of answering every single 
silly statement against him, he answers really only the necessary things. He answers only when, when truth is at stake. In verses 62 through 63, when he's before the Sanhedrin, there are so many people saying so many things about him. And instead of, and instead of going through each individual's case and saying, so, so obviously why they're wrong and really just, just being hateful and bitter against him, he only speaks when what question's asked. Is, is it true? Is this true that you are the Christ? Well, is it true that you are going to rebuild the temple in three days? Oh, yeah, that part was true. And that part, he was not willing for anybody to misconstrue or confuse. That part he was very clear about. When you get to chapter 27, when he comes before Pilate, just three, four verses here, beginning in verse 11, it says, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor questioned him saying, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. What amazed him? Well, I think the same thing that would amaze us today. Jesus showed so much more restraint than we often do, even when the, the slightest insult is spoken against, against us. But before Pilate, again, he only spoke when truth was at stake. He only answered Pilate's honest questions, not the scribes and the chief priests' vain and dishonest ones. You see this even with Herod. We're not going to go there, but in Luke chapter 23 and verses 8 through 11, Herod, when he brings Jesus before him, he wanted to be in his presence, not to ask him any questions about truth, not to ask him any questions the way Pilate did, but rather he just wanted to show. He wanted Jesus to perform because he heard many interesting things about Jesus. And, they, and the people were still falsely accusing Jesus, and that entire time he did not say anything. The main difference is no one cared about the truth there. From Herod to the people that were making the false accusations, no one deserved an answer because no one had an honest uh, question, no one had an honest plea, no one had an honest desire to know what the truth was. So neither Herod's insults nor the scribes' bitter slander did Jesus address. We need to learn from Jesus' example how to answer only the important things, because not everything has to be responded to, especially when you think about evangelism. There are going to be moments when, when you are having studies with individuals and they say things really almost just so off the wall, but you read a passage from Scripture, you read the words of someone else from the Bible, and they look up and they say, you are just, you're just so judgy. Well, I mean, I certainly hope not, but even if that is the case... That doesn't change the words that God has written down for us. I mean, that doesn't change anything. Is it going to help the situation if I allow my ego to be offended? If I allow my ego to get puffed up and, well, how dare you say something like that to me? What is that going to do? That's going to take us away from the study, isn't it? Sometimes people like to deflect. When you approach maybe an erring brother and, and you're talking to them about worries that you have about them because maybe you know about some sin or some iniquity in their lives. And, and what, what do you hear sometimes? They say, well, what about that brother over there? What are they doing? They're deflecting. <laughs> Nothing to do with the point here. I, sometimes the best things that we can respond with is, I don't have anything to say about that because that's not what we're, we're talking about, this, you right now. 
And I think it would behoove us to try and emulate Jesus' example all throughout. There were several times when I've had studies with family members, and they, because they knew me well, they knew me better than anybody else, they could really bring some stuff up. And stuff that I wasn't happy about, stuff that I wasn't proud of. And they could look at me and say, how, how dare you come to me like this, with a Bible in hand, and try to beat me with it after all these things that you've done, you have done. And I would talk to J.R. about that, J.R. Bronger, and, and I, would just, I, I would try to figure out how I needed to address those things. And he said exactly this, you don't need to address it. In fact, you shouldn't address everything that only has to do with your pride. If, are they disrespecting God by these statements? No. Should they be saying them? No. But are they attacking God? Absolutely not. So maybe you just need to stop focusing so much on your pride and focus more on God's honor. And that helped me quite a bit. And you think about that in Jesus' example, especially when the false testimonies are being given, because if you've been on social media for any time period, if you, if you just exist on, online, then you have experienced some form of slander that was not deserved and that was completely false. And a lot of times when that happens to us, we immediately, but, I, but the thing is, I could put them in their place. I have the facts. I have all the information I need. I could, put, I could, I could really make an example out of them. I could show them. Let me just ask, don't you think that Jesus could have done that? In every case, but particularly when you look at verses 67 and 68, they started spitting in his face, they started beating him with their fists, and they slapped him, and what did they say? Oh, oh, if you're the Christ, why don't you, why don't you tell us who hit you? You know what's striking about that? He could have. He could have given them their names. He could have given them their father's names. He could have told them about where they were earlier that day. Because he created them. And he could have started going down the list of all of the problems that they had in their lives. He could have done that. But, but he didn't find that necessary. Jesus quite literally turns the other cheek when he could have done so much more. And why? Because the, he was working toward a, a greater good. We need to be able to do the very same thing. Often, the things that we are to be silent about are indeed unfair. But acknowledging them only takes the focus away from the important, from, from the gospel. And it gives more credence to the, to the slander than is deserved. So we need to learn something from Jesus' example here. And only learn when it is actually necessary to speak and give a defense. Is it just for myself? Then probably not. Is it for God? Then every single time. Ultimately, though... Again, keeping with Jesus' example, you don't have to make a defense if you've been living the proper life beforehand. Jesus didn't need to give a defense because his life spoke loudly enough. Over in John chapter 18, I love this, this passage, this part of the story. It's just, it's so, it's just such a cool moment of, of Jesus. As he speaks to, to uh, Annas and Caiaphas, John chapter 18 and verse 19 beginning. It says, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? What did Jesus say? If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? 
Now, what I love about this passage is Jesus could so confidently ask those questions. And I immediately wonder, could I answer that confidently and that quickly like Jesus? With just my public example, at work, at school, in the grocery store, at home, could I say, testify of the wrong that I've done? Uh, you know, coming back to that social media example, if, if we perused your social media accounts, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, whatever the case may be, could you say, go ahead, try and testify of any wrong that I've done or that I've said or that I've shared or that I've liked? Testify of the wrong. Oh, you know what? It, it, there's nothing I can see this week. Well, let's just keep going. What about last week? And that's, that's one of the curses about the online presence is you go back far enough, you're going to find something. So could we answer like Jesus and say, truly, I have been living the proper life. And everything that I teach, I teach openly. There's nothing that I've done in secret. There's nothing that I'm trying to hide. Jesus was very clear about the gospel message and about what he came to do. And here they are asking, what, what, what are you trying to teach? What are you talking? What am I trying to teach? You know, just as everyone else knows. And, and even with false testimonies, they couldn't convict him. Ultimately, because it's difficult to convict a truly, truly innocent man. Can I say that I am, that I've been truly innocent? Could I say if someone came to me with an accusation, ask anybody, they'll tell you what I've said. They'll tell you what kind of man I am. You can, just, you can just go around and you're going to find a consistent answer that I've focused only on the gospel message. Could you, could you say that? Again, confidently. We should be able to, we should, we should have the, the capability to keep silent in these moments simply because like Christ, we have led truly innocent and truly godly lives. So the question is, have we been? So... Continuing on, going past just the silence of Jesus, I also want to look at the compassion that you see with Jesus. It, the story, unfortunately, does not end there. You get to back to Matthew chapter 26 and verse 69 beginning. Verse 69 of Matthew chapter 26. And it says, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, You too are with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I, I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you two are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. And then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately, a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is already a sad enough story. But when you look at Luke's account, it makes it that much sadder. Because look at the, the added detail that Luke gives us. But Peter said, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. That's terrifying. Can you just imagine for a moment, put yourself in Peter's uh, sandals here, 
And, and imagine not just denying the Lord, but literally looking into his precious eyes while you swear and deny him. Can, can you imagine the sorrow? You can understand how Peter immediately had to flee just to weep. And bitterly, it says. That is, that is, that, that is striking to the core. To think about looking into his eyes and both of you remembering that moment where Peter said, oh, I would go to prison for you. I would die for you. And Jesus all along knowing. And they both, while they look at each other, know what Peter said. Now, as you think about that, Jesus knowing that he betrayed him, that he denied him, what do you think Jesus felt towards Peter at this moment? For us, for me, immediately I would struggle with anger and bitterness and hatred, vehement hatred, animosity. Why? Because someone that was supposed to be close to me has, has utterly betrayed me. Someone who could have been a boon in this time of crisis and pain and sorrow has really become a, instead of, instead of a support, has really become a cause of more grief and more depression and sorrow. Do, so do you, do you think that Jesus had hatred or anger? I would just say, I don't think that he did. If you look back to the scene that we were just talking about when they were talking before this happened in Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22 and verse 31. Look at what Jesus says to Peter as he tells him what's going to happen. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus, again, just like he knew with Judas and still washed his feet. He knew that Peter was going to deny him. But what, is, what are the words that Jesus gives to Peter? Words of comfort and grace and mercy. Yes, you are going to hurt me. You are going to betray me. But you know what? I'm praying for you. And I'm praying that you turn around when you repent that you're actually going to be an even greater support for your brethren. I'm praying for you when that happens. Isn't this the definitive trait of Jesus? To have compassion for his straying sheep, even when they're in the middle of causing him deep, serious pain. What does it say in Luke chapter 23 and verse 33? What does Jesus pray? Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do while he's on the cross. This is the definitive characteristic of Jesus. Now, with all that being said, is this our definitive trait? Do we have this kind of compassion when we've been wronged? You think about 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, where, where Peter says that love covers a multitude of sins. Do we have this kind of compassionate love or maybe loving compassion? That doesn't sound like someone who, when, when they have been betrayed in some sense, when they have been hurt by someone that they were close to, even maybe by brethren, they're not going to say, okay, oh, I see how it is. Let's play this game then. You hurt me? All right, we're going to get this war started. That's not what the Christian says, because that's not what Jesus said. What is the Christian supposed to say? How are we supposed to act? If we have that kind of loving compassion, instead of that, we're going to just like Jesus say, I'm, I'm praying for you. Yes, you've hurt me, but I am sorrier for your spiritual state than my physical detriment. 
That is how the Christian's supposed to speak. You think about 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul is talking to them about the absurdity of the fact that they are taking each other to court when they should be the most, they should have this kind of love that Peter, that we were just reading about in 1 Peter chapter 4. That instead of taking their brethren to court, they should have pity on them. That they should be willing to be defrauded. Why? Because they care more about their brother's soul than about their own, again, physical detriment. Do we have that kind of pity, not for ourselves, but for our brother's soul when we have been defrauded? Again, I think we much more quickly come to the conclusion that me and you are going to reconcile every cent. And we are not going to be on good terms. We're not going to be on talking terms. We're not going to be family until this is settled. That's, that's the way the person who's not led by Christ reacts. But the way that the person who is led by Christ reacts, they say, let's just be reconciled, not monetarily let's be reconciled me and you relationally let's be reconciled spiritually that's the focus that's the focus Jesus always had even in the middle of the worst betrayals are you willing to have that kind of compassion I think we need to if we want to be servants of Christ well, finally, I just want to look at the rejection of Jesus as you continue throughout this story back in Matthew chapter 27 in verse 15, Matthew 27 and verse 15, it says, Now at the feast of the governor, uh, or at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Bar Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Crucify him. And he said, what, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I'm, in, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, his blood shall be on us and our children. So they released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Every single party that you see here, regardless of, of the perspective that you come from, each party's activity in the matter, they, they were all equally guilty. The people were clearly guilty. They didn't care whether Jesus was innocent or not. They didn't care that he complete, obviously, obviously was not guilty. They wanted him to be put to death and in a very painful and, and, and brutal way. It didn't matter how much Pilate washed his hands because the blood of Jesus still stained them. It didn't matter how much scrubbing or washing he did. That wasn't going to get it off. So the, while the crowd is obviously guilty, even Pilate is just as guilty. Why? Because he had the means. He had the authority to let him go. He had the power. He had the choice. His choice, though, was, I'm just not going to get involved. 
Well, regardless of what he was trying to do, regardless of whatever little stunt he was trying to pull, guess what? He was already involved. No matter what side perspective you look from in this story, when we look at this story, we need to recognize that we are just as culpable. There's a hymn that we sometimes sing. You remember the hymn, I'm the One? I just want to read a couple of the verses here. It's, it's number 604 in the hymn books. But the first verse goes, I wasn't in the garden when he knelt to God and prayed. I did not kiss him on the cheek when Jesus was betrayed. I could not do a single thing to hurt God's only son. But every time I sin on earth, I feel that I'm the one. I wasn't at the trial while the crowd jeered at his name. And I didn't make him bear a cross or walk a road of shame. I could not do a single thing to hurt God's only son. But every time I sin on earth, I feel that I'm the one. I wasn't on the hillside when he gave his life that day. I did not nail his precious hands or take his robe away. I could not do a single thing to hurt God's only son. But every time I sin on earth, I feel that I'm the one. I'm the one that shouted crucify. I'm the one who made his cross so high. I'm the one who stood and watched him die. What have I done? I'm the one. You know, I, I remember when I was younger thinking about that, that hymn and just kind of wondering about the, the lyrics that you read there. I think that they are quite appropriate. Yes, we were not there literally, physically on the darkest day of all man's history, of all creation's history. We weren't there shouting with the crowd. We weren't there making decisions with Pilate. We weren't there when the rest of the disciples fled instead of staying with Jesus. But we need to realize the individual, the personal responsibility that, that we bear in this. Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, that Jesus died for us because he loved us while we were still enemies. Jesus didn't just have to die for all the sins that were committed before he was born. He had to die for all the sins that were going to be committed after. And that includes you and me, everyone in this room. And so do you think about it on these terms? I am the one. Whatever sin it may be, you know, big or small, because of that one sin, because of the many sins, he had to be put up on the cross. I'm not the one who physically put the nail in his hand, but the reason it had to be put there, the reason that his hands are permanently scarred with that nail print is because of me. Not just because of the people in the story, because of me. Jesus had to die because of my willful rejection against him, just like with the crowd. Jesus had to die for me because I denied him because of my own lack of resolve, just like Peter. Jesus had to die because of my timidity, just like Pilate. He had to die because of me. And we need to see that culpability, our own culpability in this story, that he died for you and me. And don't think that discipleship means that we're immune to this problem. Just because you're a Christian, that does not mean that you are not going to, to potentially fall prey to this. That does not mean that you are going to be immune to this temptation from the devil. Remember what Peter says in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 33 and in Luke chapter 22 and verse 33. Peter was so very adamant about, about going to death for Jesus. I don't think he was just saying that. I think he meant it. 
And you even kind of see his, his vigor and his, and his passion for the Lord when he cuts off Malchus's ear in the account of John. He was willing to go to death. He was willing to go to war for Jesus. He wasn't willing to die Jesus' death, at least not yet, not at this time. But that's what Jesus was going to require. He was willing to fight thinking that he was going to be this, this new David that was going to slaughter Rome. That's not what Jesus came to do. He came to create a kingdom that was even more powerful, that was even more transcendent, that was even more, that was even more desirable than, than what Peter and the rest of the disciples were thinking about at that time. And so Peter, he meant what he said when he told Jesus, I'm going to go to death for you. How could I ever sin against you? This is, this is why we need to be so careful. Sin is so subtle, it tricks even the most devout and the strongest disciples. Even the most dedicated disciples can fail and falter. And that's why we need to look to Jesus all the more so that maybe we can return like Peter and be, uh, become an even closer disciple than he even was beforehand. Now, we are clearly more relatable to the guilty parties of this story. I mean, there's no doubt. And we've already kind of made those points of application. But don't miss the lesson that Jesus presents for all his disciples who follow after him. Don't miss the example that he wants us to follow. That main lesson is we need to be more like Jesus. But we have to answer some questions. Jesus went before three different courts and found no justice. He went before the Sanhedrin. He went before Pilate, Rome. He went before Herod, who was just, just a, a, a pagan, uh, heathen uh, individual who didn't care about really anything. But he was put before three different courts of man. And yet still, no justice. Even though he's completely innocent, he was treated as the criminal and was put through the death of the criminal, of the guilty. Now, if the rightful king couldn't find any, any justice on earth, let me just ask, how good do you think your chances are? How good do you think our chances are being his followers? But Christ expects us to deal with it in the exact same way that he did. Finally, in 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 21, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, it says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. Now, after reading that kind of a passage, we need to think, am I willing to suffer righteously in silence like Christ? Am I willing to show compassion the way that he showed it when he by all rights, when we look at that from a purely earthly perspective, we would think, oh, you, you could let him have it. Are, are we willing to have that kind of compassion? Am I willing to suffer and be rejected for God's sake? If not, you're not following in his footsteps. You're just simply not. You're following someone else's. 
And so the question tonight is, when you look at Jesus' example through all of this, make sure that we're trying to look more like him, not less like him. That we're trying to get closer to that example and not closer to the example of the world, not, not, not less of his example. What we find in this story is the same thing that we find all throughout the Bible. Be less like the fallible characters who put God through pain and be more like our precious, perfect God who didn't have to endure the pain but did out of love. But I would just say, when you think about that, God does not pretend that it's going to be easy. He even shows us and wants us to know that. He makes the point very clear. But what he also wants us to know is how to deal with and, and, and really how to endure that kind of suffering and that kind of pain. Because we absolutely will go through it if we are wanting to follow Christ Jesus. So you may be a Christian who stumbled. Maybe you're like Peter. You have truly been devout. You have been truly dedicated. And you meant what you said when you made that vow, when you publicly confessed that he was the Christ, that he was the king. You're going to do everything that he said. But along the way, you, you denied him. And so maybe you're someone who has rejected Christ Though you were that close disciple like Peter, I, w I would say, I would admonish you to just continue following that example. Because what do you see? Peter does exactly what Jesus told him to do, which was continue, turn back to me, repent, and grow. And that's what you need to do too. Follow the footsteps of Jesus. Follow the command of Jesus. Don't continue to go down that other path learn from it and grow. If you are not a Christian, I come back to that point of culpability. Remember that you are the reason. Not him, not her, not the person sitting next to you, not me. You are the reason that Jesus, perfect Jesus had to be put up on the cross. Don't deflect the blame. Don't think about, oh, but what about other people's sins? It's because of me and no one else. That when we think about that, it has to be, I am the one. And if you have that notion already set in your mind, if you realize that you were the reason that Jesus was put on the cross and you want to do something about it, the beautiful message of the gospel is you can. God has given you a way to get past that kind of guilt, past the guilt of Peter, to get past the kind of guilt that put him on the cross and to put us into his gracious arms and into his beautiful kingdom where we will one day be able to sing and praise him forever and ever. Even though the lamb had to be slain, we will see him wound still, but in a relationship with him. Do you want that relationship? I would implore you to, to accept his terms, become a Christian tonight. If you are willing to be, become a Christian, be baptized into his death, to rise in newness of life you can have that newness of life. So if you're subject to the invitation of Christ, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.